engage. All right. Well, Mark, I hope you're ready, because, uh, man, we got a lot of good stuff here. So, a man in Ecuador legally changed his gender in the hopes of gaining custody over his kids, which, I mean, okay. hey, that's one way to do it. Uh, Tim Ferriss explains stoicism for dummies. And we'll be talking about the importance of identity, as well as the pros and cons of going monk mode. Ah, monk mode. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. Get into it. Let's dive right in. everybody welcome to man versus world i am your host mark Quepit, and we are joined as always by pete pete how you doing brother i'm doing great how you doing mark i'm doing pretty swell pretty swell i'm uh excited to get into some of this stuff um you know lots of stuff been happening lately been working hard on some new projects for 2023 uh i'd love to hear from you guys below how many of you have um already failed your new year's resolutions <laughs> and who is still going strong hit me up in the comments i would love to kind of run a little informal poll around that because uh we're by the time we launch this it'll be a couple weeks into uh 2023 and i'm just curious you know how many of you are still going strong with that and how many of you have uh fallen off the wagon and are looking to re-up so go ahead and drop a comment let me know what's up but that would be good we got some good comments last time about uh the New Year's resolutions. I had a blast going through those, actually. Nice. A lot of good stuff. Did, we should probably actually like make sure we always follow up to and ha- do like a little segment from how are you doing last week? Um, maybe we right. can circle back to that at the end of this or something. But uh, there we go. Good. I like we'll it. Have, have a, a weekly audience question. So this week's audience question will be, are you still going strong with your New Year's resolution? <clears throat> there we go. I love it. So go ahead and leave a comment below. Last week, um, actually kind of mixed in with those New Year's resolutions, we got a comment on YouTube, and uh, the the guy wanted to know your thoughts on going monk mode. You know, it seems like, especially with 2023, uh, you know, the year turning over, a lot of videos on YouTube talking about how to keep your resolutions, how to make it the best year ever, and a lot of these guys in the self-development space have been talking about monk mode. So... I wanted to get your thoughts on it. What do you What do you think of monk mode, Mark? Have you ever tried it? Well, I think we got to first define it. Okay. Um, yeah. I think I know what monk mode is, uh, and I just googled something here real quick just to ensure that I have the the correct definition. Because um, I know words like these they tend to get tossed around a lot, and they, people think that means different things. Uh, yeah. Pete, when you hear monk mode, what do you what do you think of? What does that mean to you? So the picture I have in my head, most people I think who use that, they're trying to convey. A season of your life where you cut ties with, you know, your usual your usual setup in life. You know, you, you got your buddies that you hang out with all the time. You go out and get drinks. You go do this, that, the other thing, whatever it may be. In my head, what monk mode means is you put aside all those things that you usually do. And you go wave the giant pumpkin, so to speak, on one thing for a period of time. And you just hyper focus on that thing, and everything yeah. else is is backseated. That's what. Yeah. That's now, most what people are probably not uh, arm wrestling enthusiasts like yourself. Right. So, explain what is way of the giant pumpkin. So, way of the giant pumpkin. I'm glad you asked, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's an interesting idea. So, um, the 
the, the way I found out about that is there's uh, the Canadian arm wrestler, Devin Larratt, who's gotten pretty big recently. He uh, boxed Thor Bjornsson, the strong man, yeah, I saw on a that. whim. Got guy's totally crushed. Destroyed. Yeah, it was quite hilarious. Um, so this guy, he used he used to be the champion in both arms. So he, which is unheard of. Most people, it's either right hand or left right? hand and, for arm wrestling. And this dude is like, he's a unit. How tall is he? Like six eight or something like that? six he's six. He's something like that. He's like a yeah. giant dude, like ex Canadian special forces um, yeah. guy, and uh, he's a really cool dude. Definitely check out. Uh, he, he's worth following on on social media at least. He's he's fun. Um, but go on. Yeah, so he he was a champion in both arms, right? And uh, one day he decided, you know what? I've noticed that whenever I'm injured in one of my arms, my other arm compensates and I actually get stronger. Mm. And so he decided, I'm not going to lift weights at all with my left arm. I'm just going to go all in on my right arm and I'm going to make it as huge as I possibly can. Now, keep in mind, he was he's in his 40s. He hasn't his arm hasn't grown at all all these years that he's been arm wrestling. But all of a sudden he stops lifting weights with his left arm and his right arm starts to grow. (laughs) And it's grown so much that you can actually see a physical difference. And he called this little experiment of his way of the giant pumpkin because pumpkin farmers, the way you get a giant pumpkin is you cut off all the other pumpkins except for the one. So Hmm. all the nutrients flow to that one that one pumpkin interesting so monk mode is a similar idea it's the idea of you're going to cut out all this extraneous stuff and you're going to double down on like one area of your life and usually when people talk about going monk mode they're talking about it in terms of like life productivity like you know you're you're going to get your shit together you're going to really you know take off right like in your career right at least that's that's usually the, the context that i see it being used i don't really know what other sort of scenarios you'd be using it in, uh, unless if you're going to go like monk mode around fitness or, you know, dating or some kind of thing like that. But that's usually not what people are talking about. They're usually talking about, all right, I'm going to finally get productive. I'm going to kick ass, going to build up this project, going to build up this business or whatever it is. And um, let's start with where I like the idea. Okay. Because I'm, I'm going to end up on a bit of a contrarian approach to this um, because I'm not a big supporter of monk mode. I do think it has its purposes. Now, what are those purposes? I think if you have some unique challenge that is currently facing you in your life that needs every, you know, ounce of your energy for you to succeed at, then yes, you probably should. Like so if you're quitting your day job to try and build a career working for yourself, going monk mode probably is a a great move because when you're starting a business, there's going to be a lot of um, like non-systemic sorts of effort. And what I mean by that is non-systemic. It means like it's something that uh, you're going to be doing, having to do a lot of things once and probably not do them again. Like you're going to have to come up with your first business plan. You're going to have to um, come up with like, you're going to have to learn how to you know, incorporate, get an LLC, learn how to like keep your own books, your own taxes, just like administrative stuff that once you figure out how to do, it's relatively set. Not saying you'll never revisit it. Of course, you're probably going to revisit your business plan, but getting that first one done, that's that's usually the hardest. Making your first buck, that's the hardest. Um, and so there's a lot of these one-time things. And uh, eventually though, if you're building your business properly, you'll eventually fall into systems where things start to become more and more routine. Um, And 
when you're going monk mode, that that lets that gives you that extra energy and focus you need to kind of do that sort of stuff. Um, arguably, there's a case to be made for using monk mode as just kind of like a life experience thing to kind of give yourself a reset. So it's like, you know, say you're really plugged into a super indulgent lifestyle with lots of escapism. You know, you're, you're using porn all the time, you're jerking off all the time, playing all these video games, watching all this TV, scrolling your phone so much. Going for a significant period of monk mode might be beneficial to kind of like build up your, um, call it your neurochemical diet, all right? Like you can think of it almost as like an extreme dopamine detox. It's it's similar almost to going on an elimination diet, like with actual food. Like so if someone's got a bunch of food problems, like a lot of allergies, maybe some autoimmune issues and stuff like that, they'll start they'll they'll go to an incredibly basic diet. Like they'll just eat meat. That's a popular one now cuz pretty much no one has a negative reaction, particularly to red meat. So it's like, it's pretty safe. You can live entirely off of it. In fact, even thrive on it. And you go on that for a period. You kind of resensitize your taste buds. Most people lose a bunch of weight. And then you can gradually start reintroducing other stuff and seeing how, you know, it it fits with your system. And so if you do this with monk mode, yeah, that's awesome. Um, you'll be able to see, all right, what's give yourself a nice reset period, resensitize your brain to more natural dopamine sources like making progress, fitness, health, that kind of stuff, rather than just the the low value sort of stimulation that a lot of people fall into. So I will add the caveat to this that going monk mode is a bad way to quit porn, uh, usually a very bad way to quit porn because quitting porn or any other, I would say, significant addiction is something where you're going to want support. You're going to want alternative, easy to grab dopamine sources. Like for me, I mean, I didn't even know what the hell I was doing back when I was quitting porn, uh, when I got clean. Um, but I played a ton of video games and honestly, I don't know if I would have been able to really do it unless I did that. Um, and you know, was that the best? No, but it let me quit porn, which then help me really level myself up, my brain up, that kind of thing, my business up. (laughs) And then later, when I was more stable, I was able to then take out the video games. And so for a lot of guys going through the process of quitting porn, you're going to probably want to keep some of that more indulgent behavior that's less triggering, whatever. So you can still take the edge off of that dopamine craving in your brain. But that kind of circumstance aside, you know, monk mode can for sure be useful. Now, the thing that I disagree with in relation to monk mode being put forth as like, oh, this is what you got to do in 2023 if you really want to get ahead, is that I think a lot of it comes from shortcut thinking. It comes from people who are looking for a way to to, to kind of rip off the Band-Aid and get to where they want to be as quickly as possible. And really what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out, all right, how can I, how can I avoid extra discomfort? How can I avoid... Uh, spending time doing hard things. If I can just concentrate it all into this one period, well then that's what's going to really help me live my best life. And the problem is, well, that's basically just not entirely true. The way you build the most satisfying life is you learn how to do balance. You learn how to incorporate recreation and productivity. And this is not something that you are going to figure out while in monk mode. All right. And for most of us, monk mode has to be a temporary thing because few people want to live that way permanently. 
There are some people who do, you know, who are essentially, you know, modern ascetics. You know, they, they are happy to live without a cell phone. They're happy to uh, live without, you know, uh, any sorts of dopamine indulgence. They'll, they'll just live this Spartan restrictive lifestyle kind of indefinitely. Uh, but most of us don't really want to do that. Most of us want to have a social life. We want to be able to have a drink with our friends. We want to be able to have some, some tasty food now and again. We want to be able to, you know, have fun. You know, plug into all of the the crazy, interesting shit that's happening in this modern world, and so that that's what I think real growth is found in. It's like when you are able to live the full spectrum of the human experience um, and being able to do it in balance, where you're meeting all of your highest goals while also enjoying the life that you're currently living, and so. That's where I see the danger is people trying to just get this shortcut to success because shortcuts, they just don't work. They don't because, all right, let's say you do do monk mode, all right? You you do it particularly, as I was saying, to, to build your business and get it started. Well, what happens when you go out of monk mode? What happens when you can't take it anymore? What happens when you just feel lonely? When like, even if you're making progress in your business, you're not feeling fulfilled because there's so many other holes in your life. What do you do then? Well, you're going to have to start reincorporating things. Now, it's possible that you're able to reincorporate these things smoothly and you're in a better position now that you've done monk mode. But I think in general, what's going to happen with most people, if they're kind of going at it on their own, is that in this reincorporation process, well, they're not even really going to have a reincorporation process. What they're going to have is this black and white binge swing where they crack down really hard, they're monk mode for a few days, and then they binge. They just like, they, they get this this feeling of intense restriction, and then they just go all out, and they just like go on a bender doing all the indulgent shit that they had denied themselves. And I see the same, the reason I say this is because I see the exact same thing happening with guys trying to quit porn, is they they try and go super restrictive, uh, they, they buckle themselves down, they white knuckle their way through, and then what happens? Well, they go on a bender, because they haven't actually practiced uh, addressing what their root issues are. They've made a superficial habit change on the surface that is unsustainable because they haven't built up the internal structures to support it, particularly on the mindset and the belief system and uh, the, the thought processes, all right? Because that's where, that's where you're gonna find the real sustainable solutions is when you can shift the way that you think about your productivity, when you can shift the way that you can um, that, that you interact with stimulation, where it doesn't need to be this black and white thing, but it's something that you can uh, tailor and tune to your ideal lifestyle. So monk mode, it's got some pros, 100%. But I think a lot of people who are going to be trying to do monk mode this year, they're going to crash and burn spectacularly doing it. And uh, I'm not saying it can't work, but probably a lot more thought needs to go into it. Uh, and likely a lot more support like needs to go into it. Like you need to have a community around you. You need to probably have a mentor. You need to have someone that can help you figure it out. Now, there's always going to be these these outlier people who have this tremendous sense of will. They have this tremendous drive and they are able to figure it out all on their own. But And I think sometimes these people who do that, they promote it as this is the best way and they tell other people about it, but it doesn't work for the average person. And so, you know, you got to be careful about where you're taking your advice from. Um, and in particular, you know, the, the advice you want to, there's two different kinds of advice you can get from people. 
One, well, I guess there's three. There is the first kind, the kind you have to be most wary of is the people who just want to say stuff that sounds cool. Sounds good. All right. It's like, you know, this is the YouTuber who hasn't really done monk mode, hasn't transitioned out of it. And they just putting it forth as like, this is what you should do. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, you got to take that with a grain of salt because they don't have the experiences to really back up what they're saying. They don't really know what they're talking about. That's one, one category. The next category is a person who has done the thing. That person can tell you a lot more. They can give you some more insight and stuff like that. But the problem is they only speak from their own perspective. And so my more valuable still got to, you know, maybe sift through the wheat and the weeds with what they're saying. But then the third kind, which is the best kind of information you can get is from the people who have not only gone through something themselves, but they have successfully coached and moved other people through the process as well. They've actually been responsible for getting other people results in this methodology. Those are the people who really understand how some kind of personal change works. So for example, if you're trying to lose weight, you probably don't want to uh, take advice from someone who has never lost weight. Okay. Uh, and you, the person you'd want the most is the person who has lost weight themselves and also helped a bunch of other people do the same thing. Cause it's very different. Like I had to learn this the hard way is like with quitting porn is like, all right, just because I quit porn didn't mean that I automatically knew how to help other people quit porn. You know, it took me a number of years to really nail down that process to the point where it was replicatable and transferable to another person. And so just these are sort of the things that you want to keep in mind when you're getting advice from anybody, getting advice on something from anybody, let alone around monk mode. So does that make sense, Pete? Yeah, it does. And, you know, it seems like the implication of monk mode is that you're kind of going solo you know you're taking other people out of the equation you're just it's you you by yourself you know and you're just hustling away which is kind of funny because i don't i don't know a lot about real life monks but i'm pretty sure they do the opposite of that <laughs> yes they are all cloistered together and they're all doing the same thing they're supported by each other they have they have the social component and this is the thing that's, I'm glad you brought this up because this is a, a key thing, is that we are social creatures, fundamentally. And I mean that like on the level of our neurobiology. A huge amount of your neural processing is dedicated to social interaction, okay? And so when these monks, they go and they live in a monastery with other monks, that social reinforcing process that gives them a tremendous amount of uh, motivation and ability that they wouldn't have necessarily on their own. Because it's like when you're, we're naturally, naturally programmed to be able to go along with the crowd. And so if your crowd is a crowd of other monks, it's going to make it 10 times easier for you to act that out. And so if you're trying to go all solo and, you know, be this, this Sigma male grind set monster, um, <laughs> Uh, I think you're going to struggle. The average guy is 100% going to struggle with this. So if you are planning on going monk mode, at least get yourself a little, uh, you know, discord group of other uh, modern monks, as it were. Uh, otherwise, you, uh, you're greatly diminishing your chances of success. And uh, buy a robe while you're at it, you know, go all in. Let's like, yeah. yeah, shave your head, out. go all in. Yeah, yeah, might as well. 
Actually, I think I want to try that. I think I'm going to go cue ball for a while. Do the uh, you got to do the uh, the Franciscan look where it's like you just shave the top of your head? Oh, and... oh no! <laughs> I don't think I have the guts for that. That's uh, next level stuff. Yeah, that's that's how you know that you're really dedicated to God because you've picked purposefully the stupidest looking haircut possible <laughs> to 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 shatter any illusions of uh, personal grandeur. Alrighty, guys. So next up, man legally changes his gender to gain custody over his kids. This was a crazy Vice article here. So I'll just read a little segment from it. So a cisgender man in Ecuador legally changed his gender to female in an attempt to gain custody over his two daughters. But LGBTQ groups are concerned about the man's use of a law designed to promote transgender rights and what effect it could have in the future. Rene Salinas Ramos, I don't know how to say it, I'm sorry, 47, told local media that the change was not related to his sexuality or identity, but rather that the Ecuadorian legal system gives preferable rights to mothers over fathers when it comes to the custody of children. So, Mark, do you think this will be, uh, there'll be more cases of this? Well, I mean, that's what happens when you give preferential treatment to one group over another, is that people are always going to try and work the system, right? We see this in uh, the the prison system, right? Like you have guys going to prison and they're like oh i'm a i'm a woman now and so they go they get moved to a female prison and then they get uh the the female inmates pregnant um (laughs) frankly i don't know why every male criminal is not not doing that um you know i'd rather be in there with uh with women than you know other guys who are much more likely to attack and kill me um I don't know if I would actually do it like that, but I mean, I totally get the appeal. If I was looking at a lifetime in jail, um, you know, that that's definitely a tempting offer to put on the table. And so I know that this whole idea of the unfairness of the, the custody system, at least in the United States, is one of the big points of the, the MRAs, the men's rights activists. And this is one of the points where I actually think that the MRAs are not being whiny little wieners. Um, they actually have a few points that I really, you know, vibe with and the unfairness in the system around this kind of stuff is, is an important one. Cause just because it's the mother doesn't mean that she's a more suitable parent. I know plenty of mothers who are far worse parents than, you know, the father is, and it should be taken on a case by case basis, right? It, it shouldn't just be this thing. Oh, all oh, the mother gets the kids. I mean, in the ideal world, or maybe even in, let's say, the traditional world, um, that might, on average, be the case uh, where uh, the the mother has kind of like that more, I would say the mother might have a, a higher inclination toward being a better parenting figure just because of the, the nurturing instinct of women. Uh, but men have that too. And sometimes, you know, they get it more than the woman does in the relationship. And so it's like... Uh, I feel for this guy, you know, I imagine like if, you know, like my daughter, you know, I was going to maybe not be able to see her, you know, I'd consider doing something like this. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? To, if, if I felt like that was what was best for my kids, let's say my wife wasn't in a good position, she wouldn't be a good or my you know former wife wasn't a good uh, mother to these kids. Like I'd do everything in my fucking power to make sure that I had that custody. So I, I, I sympathize with this guy, but uh, it is a little bit, uh, I don't even, I don't know if I want to say funny, 
But the fact that the LGBTQ groups are concerned about this is uh, intriguing. Like, what? Like, so what's their grounds then? Like, wh- why would they be upset? Does it say in the ar- argument or in the article about that? Well, I think he made a a big mistake of admitting because it says told local media that the change was not related to his sexuality or identity. Probably should have kept his mouth shut about that because uh, I don't think it's going to help him now that he said that. I don't think the courts are going to be like, well, he's legally a female. So, you know, we'll give it to him. I don't I don't know that that would be enough of a, you know, I don't know if that would help him enough. So that's what they have beef with. He's legally listed as a woman, but he's publicly stated, hey, I don't actually identify this way. I'm just trying to get my my daughter. And this but this is where it gets fucking crazy is like a trans person. They are only, you know legally a woman they're not actually a woman i'll say it you know it's just the truth they're not right (laughs) they're just saying that and then you know some people somewhere will put them in a different mental box and sometimes they get to be filed under something different in a legal system they're not changing their dna chromosomes okay like it's just so they're kind of just saying well we have the right to uh semantically warp reality but you don't and it's like well i don't know i think he might have a this is this all right so here's the debate here's the debate that comes up in my mind is like does a person who simply feels like a woman and whatever that is since we can't define that does that person have more right to that title than a person who's trying to maintain access to their kids who has who has greater right to that um, designation of the undefinable woman. Uh, I think that like, as soon as you open it up to like, like someone's previously immutable characteristics uh, being up to personal discretion, you're going to have a whole big can of worms regardless of how it plays out. And so I think the real answer is to just reform the, the legal system so that it, it takes it person by person and it doesn't add any sort of preferential treatment without an investigation into who's the more suitable parent and whatnot. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's, it's just dumb. It's just, it's just the ongoing circus of modern sexuality and, uh, you know, you know, tough cookies to the, uh, the people who are angry about it because I mean, it's like, well, you guys changed the rules. So this guy's just trying to take advantage of them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next up, Tim Ferriss explains how he uses Stoic philosophy in his own life. I thought this would be interesting to get your take on, Mark. Let's see. Oh, Tim Ferriss rocking the Commander Q hat. Let's see. I talk a lot about Stoic philosophy. So what I appreciate about Stoic philosophy is how well it is used in highly challenging circumstances. I've built this into my own life by fasting, by exposing myself to cold. I have a practice of cold exposure, which is done very safely. I have different types of planned suffering and planned poverty so that any type of unplanned suffering or unplanned financial hit will have less of an impact on me. This applies in many different fields. This is a compatible ethos with the more you sweat in peacetime, the less you bleed in wartime. A lot of the advice that you might get from a former Navy SEAL commander like Jocko Willink, he wouldn't call stoicism, but the mental toughness that he has developed and also trained in other people is very much, not gonna say identical, but a close cousin to stoicism. I talk a lot. Okay, stoicism. 
Well, we have to look at where this this advice is coming from, okay? Because there's a lot of a lot of popular Instagram accounts that are all about this kind of stuff. It's like, oh, I'm gonna go walk in the cold. I'm gonna do my ice baths. I'm gonna be, you know, discipline equals freedom and this kind of stuff. And many of the people who are promoting this sort of stuff as like a daily discipline, daily routine kind of thing, they're pretty comfortable and well off. Um, and if you're Tim Ferriss, you're a multimillionaire. Yeah, I think this is perfect for you. You need to make sure that you are inducing discomfort into your otherwise incredibly comfortable life. Now, I don't know what other kind of shit Tim deals with. Maybe he does have plenty of hardship on his plate. But what I know is that in the hardest periods of my life, I wanted a warm shower, man. You know why? Because the rest of my life was hard as hell. Okay, it's like when you're when you're facing a lot of discomfort in your day to day stuff, like you're you're just barely scraping by. You don't need to take on additional discomfort. You're just gonna bankrupt your willpower budget if, like, you know, you have to uh, already do incredibly difficult things during the day. Maybe you're trying to get this crazy stressful project off the ground. Maybe you're, you know, trying to make sure you can feed your family. Then you have to go home and take care of your family, and someone's sick, and then someone's screaming, and you know, you gotta like put out fires constantly. Just throwing additional discomfort on top of that isn't going to necessarily make you stronger. If anything, it's going to make you weaker and make it more likely that you just go on a bender of escapism. Now, like I was saying previously, there's always going to be outliers and stuff like that who don't do this sort of thing. And if you have an incredible, comfortable, life, incredibly comfortable lifestyle, yeah, probably voluntarily inducing more discomfort will um, help you level up a little bit, help you get a little more comfortable with discomfort so that you can do other things. Um, But for most people, I would say this kind of stuff is just superficial bullshit. You'd be better off just setting yourself a big ass juicy goal that you're really excited to go for. That's a little bit scary. That's definitely hard. It's outside your comfort zone and just going after that full force. And then you know, you put out a few hours, three hours, four hours, however many hours is appropriate for you into doing that difficult shit, and then you relax, then you chill out, then you actually allow yourself some recreation, some downtime where you don't always need to be outside of homeostasis because that's the thing is like the only way that you can be like perpetually outside of your comfort zone is if external forces are demanding that you be there or forcing you to be there. Like, I don't think there's many people alive that are going to be able to, for example, go through like a military hell week just upon by their own volition. You know, they they can do that because their entire environment is controlled and the people around them are doing it. They are being organized to do that. They're being pushed to do that. Otherwise, just the the natural mechanisms of your own body, they're going to call you back to homeostasis. They're going to call you back to comfort. And unless you have some uh, literally like house on fire kind of reason to not do that, you will. And so like I I think you just got to you got to be careful of not getting caught up in the hype, not getting caught up in the kind of almost Hollywood level production and aesthetic that a lot of these top level influencers put out. Okay. Like, yeah, it's exciting. It's motivating to see these people do these tough things, but, um, 
you know, if, if I have a guy, for example, he's coming to work with me, he's got, a, he's got a family, you know, maybe things are challenging at home, he's strapped for time, he's strapped for energy. What I'm doing with him is I'm figuring out, all right, you've got this much willpower, all right? And how do we funnel that into the things that really move the needle in your life the most? And how do we do that in the most efficient way possible so that you can still have rest, you can still have recovery, you can still have uh, life satisfaction where you don't hate your freaking life, right? Where you're actually able to stay in the game day in and day out for years and years at a time. So that's my reaction to this sort of thing. Like, I mean, I know Tim Ferriss understands Stoic philosophy more than this clip, okay? Because this clip, it almost sounds like he's just reducing Stoicism to the practice of asceticism or hormesis, which is the process of, you know, inducing discomfort so you can get a, a strengthening response. There's a lot, there's also a lot to it in terms of like not letting yourself get too excited, not letting yourself get too down, like learning how to just see things as they are and not putting judgments on them and that sort of stuff. But even that part of stoicism, I'm not super in love with. I believe that like, like stoicism is about like re- removing extremes in emotion. Uh, a lot of it, it's like learning how to be very, very even keel. And that's better than being erratic. That's better than being, um, down in the dumps for sure. But I think the strongest state you can be is, is like a state of full passion, a state of excitement, a state of like really hungering and thirsting for progress and success in your life, learning how to really kind of crack the bones of life open and drink the marrow as it were like that to me is the 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 pinnacle of like what you should be aiming for from a self-development standpoint and i i think that stoicism in a lot of ways it, it the the purpose is to blunt your passion it's to make you more of a logical sort of robot and like i said that's a that's an upgrade from other sorts of mindsets, like a, a pleasure-seeking mindset, a completely uninspired mindset, etc. But I wouldn't say that's the optimal one. I would want one where I'm focused on living the the absolute best that life has to offer. And yes, of course, that requires some sort of sacrifice, that requires some sort of discipline and that sort of thing. But uh, it should always be for the sake of enhancing the passion, enhancing the your capacity to save your life. And so as long as it's done in that attitude, it works. And I'm sure gonna have plenty, you know, stoic apologists uh, in the comments telling me that I'm looking at it wrong and, you know, please, you know, go at it. But uh, in general, the way that stoicism is often put forth, it gives me kind of like this, uh, let's neuter our emotions so that we can become a, a higher performing robot. And I just don't dig that vibe. You know, I'd rather become a higher performing human, which is very different than a robot. It's we are we are passionate, emotional creatures and learning how to harness and direct that power and stoke it to the the, the peak is where I think human potential really lies. Ben Shapiro is triggered right now. <laughs> Shaking. Why? Is he, is he a, a big stoic guy? Well, I don't think he's a big stoic guy, but, you know, he's always... He's always saying, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, facts don't care about your feelings. That's what he says, which I love. Yeah. But I'm well, just giving him a hard time. It's true. But uh, reality cares about your feelings. You get enough people who are upset and butt hurt over something. doesn't matter what the facts are. You ha- like, that's the thing is like super uh, logical thinking kind of people. They, uh, 
they they try to create this logical supremacy, this framework of logical supremacy uh, for how to live life. But we're not preeminently logical creatures. And so if you don't account for the emotional aspect of things, if you don't learn how to work with it, then you're constantly going to be smacking up against it and you're going to find yourself uh, at war with it, either in your own self or in, in the other people around you. And the, it's the guy who understands both, who understands the logical and the emotional and can surf both of those currents. And they're very different things to surf. It's like the difference between, you know, surfing an ocean wave and like, uh, I don't know what would be a, a, like riding a dirt bike. They're, they're different skill sets. They're very, very different, probably even more different than what I just described. But, you know, you got to be able to do both um, and do them seamlessly together to reach your true potential, I believe. Makes sense. All right. Next up, I was listening to a, a podcast with Hopefully Peter Atia. You pray, you said. Nope. Sorry. Go ahead. So it was Peter Atia and James Clear, and they were talking about the importance of your self-image and identity. And especially in relation to habit change, making progress with your goals. And I was listening to that podcast. And as I was listening to it, you tweeted out, the more you believe that you already are the kind of man who behaves like your ideal, the more true it becomes. Speed of personal development then is primarily powered by blind faith, where logic and rationality tend to slow us down by requiring incremental proof. I thought that was really interesting. I was wondering if you could expand on it. Yes, absolutely. Um, it is funny that I tweeted that while you're watching that idea. Um, yeah. I know that, yeah, James Clear, he's done a lot of work talking about how identity shifts are um, important in terms of habit change. And he's he isn't the guy who discovered this. This is something that's been known for a while. Uh, it's something I learned, you know, way back in my coach training days. Uh, and it's it's something I think Napoleon Hill was one of the guys who really like popularized this idea of uh, self-image and whatnot, the way that you view yourself. But the the realization that I've been making lately is that <laughs> there is a tremendous amount of power in irrational belief. Okay. I actually wrote an email about this that I don't know if it'll be out before or after this, this podcast, but I was talking about how both all stars and idiots share a common attribute. And that attribute is that they can operate irrationally. So let me explain this to you. The, the dumb person actually can transform far more rapidly than your average, like, mid-range mid smart person. Why is that? And it's because <laughs> they can be sold a story and they can internalize it quickly. They don't have too much logical objection to it. Now, sadly, the, the mechanism by which this is normally played out is, is for, through some kind of like um, brainwashing, all right? So for example, like if you get brainwashed by a cult, you know, you're someone who's susceptible to that sort of thing. Well, you're going to be able to turn your life. You're going to change the trajectory of your life very quickly. And, you know, sadly, with stuff like that, it's not always for the better. But I'm sure you can think of uh, people, you know, or just the, understand the concept of how someone who's brainwashed by a system could actually end up in a maybe better position than where they were at before. So, for example, if you're like a, uh, you know, junk food addict. All right, you're going to be better off if you get brainwashed into becoming a vegan or if you get brainwashed uh, into becoming a CrossFit, you know, psychopath, you know, someone who's just crazy about CrossFit. Like 
Yeah, is that the best? No, but it's probably better than where you're at. Uh, same sort of thing where it's like someone who is like a criminal drug addict. If they become brainwashed by a fundamentalist religious sect, they're probably going to have a better life. You know, I'm just going to be honest about it. It's not the ideal. You can you can see problems with it, but that person they can transform their life very quickly. And the reason is because they're able to create a new conception of themselves very rapidly and implement it. So the question is, how can we do this? How can we harness this power without falling into the pitfalls of obviously getting brainwashed by someone uh, into some sort of, you know, shitty sort of system. Well, I think it comes down to your ability to, to believe in a new version of yourself. All right. Cause if you look at, if you try and think about who am I and you think about it from a purely logical perspective, what are you going to do? You're going to look at, well, who have I been? What have I done? How have I behaved? And you're going to build your conception of self from there. The problem is, I believe that most of us, most of what we do is kind of inauthentic behavior. Much of it's driven by uh, programming and conditioning that we accrued unconsciously during our process of development. We, we collect all these kind of coping mechanisms and habits, most of them without, you know, we didn't even realize we were building it. And so if we l just look at our historical behavior, we're going to see a lot of just stuff born out of that, born out of just this unconscious conditioning. And so... You're going to have this concept of self where you're this person that you are now. And in order for you to change, you're going to have to keep trying to fight against that self-conception. Now, it's not going to really work. This is why so many people, they, they, they constantly rubber band. Um, you know, Tony Robbins talks about this stuff all the time. It's, it's, the, it's the idea that you will always end up acting according to how you believe you are. Like your beliefs about yourself determine how you're going to show up in this world. And you might be able to step away from it from a little, for a little while. You know, you're going to start building those new habits and stuff like that. But if that self-image doesn't change, you will 100% come back to it. And so how do we get around this? Well, you have to believe that you are someone else. And your capacity to believe in that, I would argue, is an irrational faculty. It is what, you know, in religious and spiritual language, we could call faith. The power of faith, the, the power to, to believe that you are something more, that you are someone better. And this is what like high performers all tend to have. They have this irrational self-confidence. Often it's not actually built upon empirical results. You know, this is something that uh, I've always had. <laughs> you know, I've always believed that I was capable of doing incredible things, even if I was behaving and the total opposite. I was behaving like an absolute like idiot jerk off. Okay. And this has happened a lot in my life where it's like, I, I have this high sense of self, but then I'm like, Ugh, that's not, I'm not really living up to that. But since I had that image, eventually when I figured out the mechanisms, I was able to step into it and keep it permanent. And anyone can get this. Anyone can learn how to cultivate a, a an irrational self-confidence. But the thing that's blocking you is your rationality, right? That's what it is. It's like, you're like, well, I can't do that because, oh, I've always failed in the past. Or, oh, I can't do that because it'd be hard and blah, 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 right? Like the thing that you got to understand about your quote unquote rationality, your rational mind is that rationality when like <laughs> the better you are at it, 
the more static it is. You know, one plus one equals two. Right? That's just the way it is. Right? And you can't argue with the fundamental operations of logic. You can make mistakes, but you can't argue with it if you're doing it right. The thing is, our logic, at least on the practical level, is built on top of a belief framework. And that belief framework, that is what's mutable. That's what's shiftable. That's what's changeable. All right? Like you can believe you have inherent dignity or you can choose not to believe that. There's no mathematical proof that says you have inherent fundamental worth. But if you do believe in it, guess what happens? You gain access to this logical principle of you are always worth the sacrifice of doing good things. And once you have that going in your brain, well, then all of a sudden you now have a logical justification for doing hard stuff, for sacrificing for your future, for not hating yourself when things go wrong. And so if you can cultivate an irrational sense of self-worth, an irrational belief in your ability to transform, that is the gateway into figuring everything else out. And this is something that like, uh, like business people understand. Like if you, if you get any kind of good, uh, if you have any good business mentors, what they're gonna be constantly asking you is questions that challenge your fundamental beliefs. It's like, you know, if I was, if, if I was coaching someone around their business and stuff, I'd be like, all right, you know, so what's your plan? What would you like, what would you like to have happen? They're like, oh, well, you know, in about two years, I wanna be at this point. Okay, and so one way, and and they'll they'll give me all the reasons why it's got to take two years, all the things they got to do to get it done, and yada yada. And they have this complete logical conception of this is how it's got to go. And then if I just ask them something like, "Well, okay, I hear that. What if you had to get it done in three months? What if you had to get that point in three months? How might you do it?" And all of a sudden, their face goes blank because they're stepping into a new belief system. They're, they're trying on a new belief system and then they start feeding their logic circuits through that new belief system and they're like, oh, well, I guess I could get it done like this, this, and this. And all of a sudden, they now have a practical path to doing something that they couldn't have conceived of five minutes prior, all right? And so this is what happens when you have an irrational belief in yourself and you say, and you say I'm this kind of guy. Even if that kind of guy is miles away from the way you're currently behaving. If you start believing in that, your logic will find a way to back it up. This is why like confirmation bias is such a dangerous thing. People have a belief about the world. And if they are not aware of how this mechanism works, then they are never like you, you can like you can have the people like, for example, the people who are uh, like gung ho on the vaccines and everything like that. You know, you can present to them an infinite amount of evidence supporting the fact that, you know, we probably all didn't need to get forced into vaccines and we probably didn't all need to be locked down for as long as we did. And there's a ton of information to at least <laughs> at the very least crack open some doubt in that argument. But. People, they already, they've internalized it almost as a spiritual principle that lockdowns and vaccines were a good thing. And so they will, from there, they will build whatever kind of logic they need to support that belief. And, you know, we can take that power that is often used for destructive purposes and use it for constructive purposes. We can decide and claim who we are as an individual, what that means in the way that we behave, and then our logic will catch up to that. So that force, that power of faith, really is, I think, a kind of magic because it, it's not 
logical. That's the whole point behind it. And yeah, ultimately the logic's going to have to be there to make stuff ha- happen in the practical world. But you'd be surprised at what is capable when you learn how to uh, step outside the confines of your your own rational thinking. Um, and I'm not saying completely abandon it. We still need that. You know, we can't become you know crazy people who decide, well, I'm the kind of guy who can fly and then go jump off a cliff. You know, you're gonna, <laughs> you gotta have some some self preservation instinct still uh, engaged here. But hopefully, this uh, this makes some sense. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying here, Pete? Yeah, it makes it makes total sense. You know, um, the the people who tie their identity really strictly to one genre of music. It's kind of interesting because if you show them another a, sh- a song that sounds different than the music they listen to, even if it's a really good song, they might not like it. But interestingly, if you think, okay, this genre over here, I can't stand. It sounds like trash. Um, like, let's take let's take punk music, for example. Okay, or, or uh, let's take ska punk. Okay? No, no, no disrespect. But... If you listen to ska punk and you're like, this sounds like garbage, but you think it's cool to like ska punk and you're like, well, it's kind of cool. And you start listening to it and you kind of force yourself to listen to it. By the way, I'm speaking from experience here. Um, (laughs) If you force yourself to, if you want to like it, you can learn to like it, which is really interesting. You know what I mean? That actually, I had that same experience. Uh, Like I grew up where I had like my best friend, his older brother was like super into actually punk music you know it was getting into like no effects and uh you know pennywise and you know like like all these kinds of bands and actually eventually even into the ska punk like some streetlight manifesto and all these sorts of things and i remember this is back before there was like streaming music services and stuff i was like in like fourth and fifth grade i would just go to the cd store and i would just buy everything from the epitaph sampler that i had and i would just listen to it and some of the things i would listen to i was like "Ah, i don't like this but I would keep listening to it, and eventually I, I grew to love it. You know, like the hardcore stuff, like Kid Dynamite and things like that. It's like, ah, oh, this just sounds like noise, and then eventually became some of my favorite albums. And I found that like a, a similar sort of thing happens with all the other kinds of music. It even that can happen with food. It's like your brain has to learn how to appreciate something. Now, some genres of music I just can't wrap my head around. Sometimes we're just not going to have the predisposition to make certain shifts in a. Uh, Let's call it an efficient and useful amount of time. But there's a lot of power in understanding the malleability of your own tastes and emotions. And you got to you got to open yourself up to new experiences to to be able to really see how much potential there is. And if you just think about your life, like any kind of transition you've made, like people who hate working out can learn to love working out. People who who hate working hard can learn how to love it. I mean, like that's really the foundation of a lot of my anti-escapism coaching. It's like, listen, you can rewire your brain, but we got to start with, we got we to gotta Stephen Covey this. We got to begin with the end in mind. And that's what you're doing when you're trying to shift your habits from an identity standpoint. You're picking that end point of like, this is who I am. And then you work backward from there. And it makes it a lot easier than trying to fight against where you're currently at. Makes sense. All right. Last but not least, uh, Joshua on Instagram DM me this earlier. And uh, it's a Jordan Peterson clip. And uh, I got to be honest, I understand most of the words that he uses. But oftentimes when he puts them together in a sentence, I have no idea what that sentence is supposed to mean. (laughs) So hopefully you can, uh, you know, help clarify some things here. I'm sure it's great. See if I could, 
Let's see. When you pray, you sacrifice your so own tyrant, right? Because what? Right. That's it. Well, you well yeah, because partly what you're saying is, <laughs> I think, if the prayer is proper, is you're saying there's part of me that needs to go. There's part of me that needs. To, I need to let go. There's part of me that needs to die, and it has to be given up to something higher. What part of it is of me has to go, and that's. There's a contemplative aspect to that, and you look to the highest to help guide you in that. There's a discriminating spirit within you that can help separate the chaff from the wheat, and the offering up of the chaff is the sacrificial gesture, and so that can be transformed into prayer. One of the things that Jung would say about that, for example, is that if you if you give up enough psychologically, you don't have to. You'll cut your losses in actuality, and of course, that's sort of what thought's for, is right, so that you can... You can get yourself straight. You can give it up in abstraction so you don't act out the pathology and then nothing dies in actuality. Hopefully when you... So, let's see if I can break that down. What he's talking about here is basically learning how to internally sacrifice before you have to practically sacrifice. So, for example, all right, say um, you've got a relationship where uh, this person... They're kind of rough to be around. And when you're around them, you get, you know, annoyed, irritated, and you lash out at them. You get into fights with them and you walk away often feeling like, man, I, I don't like the way I behave there. And it definitely didn't help anything. And so you let's say you make a prayer. All right. And the prayer is, please, God, help me behave better with this person. Please help me love this person better. When you do that, okay. Your mind is given the opportunity, assuming you take the prayer deep into your heart, is you're given the opportunity to kill off that part of you that is resistant, that part of you that wants to to get your say in, the part of you that wants to put them down, the part of you that wants to, you know, fight for your own justice in perhaps an unproductive manner. And if you make that prayer sincerely, you're going to find that part and you're going to let go of it. You're going to confront the sadness of the loss, you know, and the loss is you're not being respected the way that you want to be respected, but you're letting it go. You're letting go of that need to get exactly what you want out of that interaction with that person. And that's what you're kind of putting on this sacrificial pyre. That's what you're putting on the the altar because prayer, you know, in the kind of ancient sense is that's what it was. It was sacrifice. You would, you know, put a bunch of stones on top of things and you'd stack up a bunch of stones and you'd put something important to you on it and then you'd light it on fire. (laughs) You'd literally kill something valuable. But the idea was that by doing that, you were going to get greater blessings in return. And so prayer, when practiced as this kind of psychological tool, that's what you're doing, right? And so this is what I try and help guys do when it comes to quitting porn is like, I try to get them ahead of time as much as possible to understand the sacrifice that they're making. Like the the beginning of the Reforged Man course, it's about getting 100% bought in. And the process that I take people through is like, all right, well, let's look at, you know, what do you stand to gain if you quit porn? Um, And then also, what do you stand to lose? What are the hardships that you're going to have to face? Right. You're going to have to maybe face the fact that you're not going to have an easy pleasure button anymore. You know, if you are, um, you know, single, you're going to have an indeterminate period of time where you're not going to be getting sexual stimulation. And you're also not going to be able to escape into a fantasy where you are enjoying uh, at least virtual sexual affirmation from like, you know, 
porn scenes, pretending that you're in them. And for a lot of guys, that's that's a deep fear. That's something that that there's a part of them that really is like, oh God, I I need that. I if I don't have that, I'm going to die. And that's kind of the point, right? We're trying to get that part to die. That part that that feels like it needs this toxic indulgence in order to be okay. And so by putting yourself into this state where you recognize a higher good, um, you're just trying to kill off the part that is lower, right? It's it's a intentional act of self-death, right? Like Peterson talks about this micro-death and micro-rebirth process that's at the, the heart of uh, self-development, and I agree with him. That's, that is how it goes. But I think the, the key to all of this, making sure that all of this works, is that you're doing it in a, a spirit of love and not in this... Um, mercenary spirit of self-loathing and self-hate like you want to be always trying to sacrifice for yourself because you care about yourself not because you hate yourself because if when it's almost like this right when you are trying to kill a part of yourself out of hate that part seemingly always rebels it runs away from the sacrifice. It's like you got to hunt it down and you got to keep trying to kill it, but it keeps getting up and keeps running away. You think you killed it, but then, you know, you, you tie it to the stake and you light it on fire. And then it's just like, I'm a witch. And it just busts free and it just keeps running away. All right. It's, it's, it doesn't really work. But when you come after that part from a spirit of love, that part, it seems to respond better. Whatever that part is, like, I don't, and I don't fully understand why, but it, maybe it's because of like, it can sense that, all right, if I die, the integrity of the whole system will improve and I might be reborn. I, meaning that that disordered part. And so this is what I see repeatedly happen when guys quit porn. That they, rep- they approach the part of themselves as attached to porn from a spirit of love. They say, hey man, this is killing us. And you know it's killing us. You're not happy living like this. And so you're going to have to die. But if you do go through this, de- this death you have the opportunity to be reborn. You have the opportunity to become a healthy sexuality, something that's aligned to something more natural and good. And if we're going to take it deeper, you you will learn how to actually even tap into a sexuality that is capable of sexual transmutation, where you're able to actually bring your sexual energy and sublimate it up into making love to life as a whole. And when you can do that, that is a much higher, more potent, more satisfying sexuality, but it's one that's incompatible with that lower one. And that lower one has to die in order to be reborn. But the only way it's going to be willing to do that is if you are there loving it, you are comforting it, you are supporting it, and holding its hand as it crosses that threshold and uh, essentially gets burnt away. And what you find as you get good at this is that that part doesn't actually die. What you're really doing is you're just burning away all of the gunk and bullshit that has been clouding it. It's almost like underneath that disordered part of you, there is a like a shining diamond that's just like, you know, covered by like oil and dirt and a whole bunch of like broken twigs and garbage and shit like that. And it's like you throw it in the fire and that external junk that you know that external conditioning the shame the guilt the all the other kind of stuff it just gets burnt away and you're left with something gleaming pure good and far far better than what you had before but it's still until you've done it it's a harrowing process because you do feel like oh shit i'm i'm gonna die like (laughs) like another image that i've used and this is what it's always felt like to me is like you're standing at the edge of a cliff and it's like oh man i gotta 
going going through this seriously feels like I'm throwing myself off a cliff. It's like into the unknown. It's like I don't know what's on the other side. I don't know what a life is without porn. I don't know what a life is without drugs. I don't I don't know what a life is where I'm like seriously showing up and pursuing my potential. And it's just like, oh, well, it's got to be better for this. Let's let's give it up for for a better life. And you you take that jump over the edge and instead of like like part of you, the bad part falls to the rocks below and dies. But the other part of you actually like stumbles a little bit. It's like, holy shit, what the heck happened? And you realize, oh, there is like an invisible set of stairs here. That part didn't fall at all. It just got, just started leveling up and it's cleaner and it's lighter and it's, it's better now. And so I think that's what he's getting at. Did that clarify things? Yeah. I love that. That's really important. Yeah. Guys, leave a comment below. Let us know. What was it? What were we going to? Oh, yeah. Let us know what New Year's resolutions you're struggling with. No, it's are you still on your New Year's resolution? And if not, give, okay. me, give me some give me some feedback. Like, yeah, let us know how long you went, you know, how it broke down, what happened. And we'll uh, we'll follow up with some of awesome. this stuff in the next one. But I think that's pretty much what we have for you guys today. Make sure you check out the training in my uh, in the description. If you want to get access to the Self Mastery Club, if you want to learn some cool tools, um, the Self Mastery Club is the place to be, guys. This is where guys are transforming their lives every single day, utilizing a very unique methodology. If you like my general philosophy here, then you definitely want to check out the actual tools and the systems that I use to help guys get these sorts of transformations. So make sure you check that out. But otherwise, I'll see you all on the next one. Ooh, yeah.